0: 9. The Starry Threshold. The only visible reminder which I have now of my residence on the island where the souls were eaten is a pocket notebook of penciled comment, with a dozen pages blank and fair at the back, in themselves a reminder of the fragmentary nature of that adventure in solitude, of the blank pages at the close of every chapter of experience awaiting the final comment, which is never set down. It is a small notebook of Chinese manufacture, with a pretty fantasy of flowers woven through the word "memoranda," and butterflies with wings of gold and blue hovering over it, meant to suggest, perhaps, that one's memories, however happy or however seemingly enduring, are as ephemeral as they and must soon fade and die but I am not willing to accept such a suggestion. To believe that I can ever forget even the most trivial of the events which took place at Rutario or at Soul Eater's Island. By some peculiar virtue of their own, they stand out with the vividness of proportions of a childhood experience, which remains fixed in the memory when other, more important happenings have been long forgotten. The casual reader of the notebook would never guess this from the comment written there. Did he know the length and the nature of my residence at Atoll? He would be surprised merely that with so much leisure for observation there should be such poverty of recorded fact. I myself am surprised and a little appalled when I think how the weeks slip by, leaving me nothing to show for them. I became a spendthrift of time. I was under the delusion that my own just share of it had been immeasurably increased, that in some unaccountable way I had fallen heir to a legacy of hours and days which could never be exhausted. The delusion was of gradual growth, like the habit of reverie which fastens itself at last upon the most restless of wanderers among the atolls. In the beginning I was full of business. I remember with what earnestness of purpose I wrote on the first page of the notebook Retario Observations on Life and Character in the Low Archipelago I had ambitious plans. I meant to go back and forth between my hermitage and the village island, notebook in hand, saying Echetera What is that? Nefa Aparo Pomati? how do you say that in Pomodian? And when I had learned the language and had completed my studies of flora and fauna, I was to be the Boswell of the atolls, curious, tireless, not to be rebuked by the wind rustling the fronds of the palms, nor by the voice of the sea, when the wind was low, saying, shh, shh, on thirty miles of coral reef. But I was rebuked Or so it seemed to me, and now I fear the learned monograph is never to be written. A faltering purpose is plainly indicated in the notebook. It becomes apparent in the first observation on the life and character of the Pomodians, which reads, Before the starry threshold of Jove's court, my mansion is, Where those immortal shapes of bright aerial spirits live, enshrared in regions mild of calm and serene air the president of the polynesian society would say and rightly no doubt that this is not germane to the subject but at the time i wrote it it was so accurately descriptive of the place where my house stood that it might have been embodied with scarcely the exchange of a word in an exact real estate announcement of the location of my property I set it down one evening in early summer, the evening of my first day's residence at Soul Eater's Island. The completion of my house had been celebrated with a feast, and toward midnight I was left alone, watching the departure of the last of the villagers, who were returning in their canoes along the ocean side of the atoll. The sea was as calm as I have ever seen it, and as they went homeward, dipping their paddles into the shining tracks of the stars, my guests were singing an old chant. It was one of innumerable verses, telling of an evil earth-spirit in the form of a seabird, which was supposed to make its home on the Motu, and at the end of each verse the voices of the women rose in the refrain, which I could hear long after the canoes had passed from sight. "'Ai, ai!' alas alas how beautiful it is a lament that a spirit so vindictive so pitiless should be so fair to outward seeming standing at the starry threshold listening to the ghostly refrain i translated its application its meaning too from the bird to the island where perhaps i would one day see it in my rambles I regretted that it was so inaccessible, so remote and hidden from the world as though that were not more than half the reason for its untarnished beauty. It is a maudlin feeling that of sadness at the thought of loveliness hidden from appraising eyes, and I am inclined to think that it springs not so much from an unselfish desire to share it as from a vulgar longing to say to one's gregarious fellows. See what I have found? Can you show me anything to equal it in beauty, you dwellers in cities? Whatever its source in this case, I was glad that it passed quickly. No tears stained my pillow, even though I knew that Ritterio could never be the goal of Sunday excursionists. But I was not quite easy in mind as I composed myself for sleep. I had made a poor beginning as a diarist. The first entry was fanciful and, furthermore, not my own. What original contribution to truth or beauty could I make as a result of the day's events? Finally I rose, lit my lamp, and wrote underneath the Comas quotation. The Platonians are very fond of perfume. This is probably due to the fact that their islands, being scantily provided with flowers and sweet-smelling herbs, they take this means of satisfying their craving for fragrant odors." Alas! alas! how erroneous it was—that observation! But I thought, when I made it, that it was based upon a careful enough consideration of the facts. During the afternoon I had distributed some gifts among my guests, chiefly among the children. I had some bolts of ribbon and dress goods, some ear-rings and bracelets thinly washed in gold, which I had bought, on credit, of Moiling the Chinaman, and had been saving them for just such an occasion as the feast at Soul Eater's Island. I also had a case of perfume which Moï had been very reluctant to part with. Perfume and toilet-waters in fancy bottles with quaint legends printed on the labels. June Rose, which the makers admitted had as much body as higher-priced perfumes. Wild Violet, like a faint breath from the forest floor. kifa Bouquet, the soul of the exquisite Orient, etc. This gift was greatly coveted. Pinga immediately took charge of the three bottles I had given his daughters and packed them carefully in a peru, together with a bottle of bay rum presented to him by virtue of his office as village barber rangituki went among her grandchildren scolding and ranting until she had made a similar collection and in a short time all the perfume was in the hands of a few of the older people this seemed to me rather high-handed procedure but it was not my place to interfere with parental and grandparental authority and it was as well perhaps that the children should be restrained Otherwise they would have saturated their clothing and their hair, and the atoll would have smelled a heaven, or very near it. I thought no more of the episode until the following Sunday, when I went to church at the village. A combined service of Latter-day Saints and the Reformed Church of Latter-day Saints was being held an amicable agreement which would have scandalized the white missionaries of those rival denominations. Nom- but at Rotario, saints and Reformed saints lived together peaceably enough. Being few in number, they often joined forces for greater effect in the hominies. The meeting was held in the reform church, a sightly structure built entirely of naino, the braided fronds of coconut palms, and the earthen floor was covered with mats of the same material. At one end of the room there was a raised platform and a deal table which served as a pulpit. The walls, lengthwise, were built to prop open outward, giving free circulation to the air, and charming views of the shaded floor of the island and the blue waters of the lagoon. The church was full, the men sitting on one side and the women on the other, according to island custom, and the children playing about on the floor between the benches. Many of the older people, too, sat on the floor with their backs to the post which supported the roof. Interest lagged during the intervals between the singing, and although Hori was preaching in his usual forceful denunciatory manner, I found my own thoughts wandering on secular paths. Of a sudden it occurred to me that June Rose should be discernible among the women of the congregation if it had as much body as had been claimed for it i could not detect its presence nor did the faintest breath reach me from the forest floor i was conscious only of the penetrating odor of drying copra which came through the open windows and the not unpleasant smell of coconut oil what had become of the perfume i wondered on sunday if at all it should have been in evidence for the women were in white dresses and before coming to church had made their most elaborate toilet of the week But Hari was warming to his theme and demanded attention, at least from me, not having heard him preach before. He had removed his coat, and was perspiring and exhorting in a way which would have pleased the most devout and gloomy of missionaries. He had a peculiar oratorical manner. His face foretold clearly the birth of an idea. One could read there the first vague impulse of the brain which gave rise to it see it gathering lucidity, glimmering, like heat lightning on a summer evening, in his cloudy mind until it was given utterance in a voice of thunder, which rumbled away to silence as the light of creation died out of his eyes. Then he would stand motionless, gazing on vacancy, profoundly unself conscious, as though he were merely the passionless mouthpiece of some higher power. The abruptness of his outbursts and his ferocious aspect when delivering them were disconcerting, and it was even worse when at intervals his eyes met mine. Even though he were in the midst of a sentence, he would pause and his face would beam with a radiant smile, in striking contrast to the forbidding scowl of the moment before. Remembering his mission, he would then proceed in his former manner. Without understanding his discourse, one would have said that he was condemning all of his auditors, who had evidently been guilty of the most frightful sins. But this was not the case. His sentences were short, and in the periods of silence between them I had time to make a translation. Cain killed Abel. Why did he kill him? Because he was a bad man. Very bad man. Tatoa and he was jealous of Abel, whom God loved, because he willingly brought him gifts from his plantation. Abel did not keep everything for himself. He said to God, Taitevora na Here is bread for you. He gave other things too, many things, and he was glad to give them, he talked at great length on this theme the members of the congregation sometimes listening and sometimes conversing among themselves. They had no scruples about interrupting the sermon. While Hori was awaiting further inspiration, hymns were started by the women and taken up at once by the others. Pinga, who sang bass parts, rocked back and forth to the cadence. One hand cupped over his right ear, the better to enjoy the effect of the music. Rangitui who went to the different churches in turn because of the Ximenes, had one of her granddaughters in her lap, and, while she sang, made a careful examination of the child's head, in search of a tiny parasite which favored that nesting-place. Nuy sat with her breast bare, suckling a three-months-old baby. Old men and women and young, even the children, sang. Huari alone was silent gazing with moody abstraction over the heads of the congregation as he pondered further the ethical points at issue in the Cain and Abel story. I had witnessed many scenes like this during the months spent in cruising among the atolls, on the Caleb S. windship, scenes to interest one again and again, to furnish food for a great deal of futile speculation. How important a thing in the lives of these primitive people is this religion of ours which has replaced their old beliefs and superstitions it would be absurd to say how fundamental for religious faith is of slow growth and it was only yesterday as time has counted that the ship duff carrying the first missionaries who had ever visited the southern ocean came to anchor at tahiti one of harry's remarks called to mind an account i had read of the first meeting between christian missionaries and the heathen they had come to save. It is to be found in the narrative of the Duff's three years voyage in the South Pacific, published in 1799 by the London Missionary Society. Sunday, March 5, 1797 The morning was pleasant, and with a gentle breeze we had by seven o'clock got abreast of the district of Ahatu where we saw several canoes putting off and paddling towards us with great speed. At the same time it fell calm, which, being in their favor, we soon counted seventy-four canoes around us, many of them double ones, containing about twenty persons each. Being so numerous, we endeavored to keep them from crowding on board, but, in spite of all our efforts to prevent it, there were soon not less than one hundred of them dancing and capering like frantic persons about our decks, crying, and a few broken sentences of english were often repeated they had no weapons of any kind among them however to keep them in awe some of the great guns were ordered to be hoisted out of the hold whilst they as free from apprehension as the intention of mischief cheerfully assisted to put them on their carriages when the first ceremonies were over we began to view our new friends with an eye of inquiry their wild, disorderly behavior, strong smell of coconut oil, together with the tricks of the Orystes, lessened the favorable opinion we had formed of them. Neither could we see aught of the elegance and beauty in their women for which they have been so greatly celebrated. This at first seemed to depreciate them in the estimation of our brethren, but the cheerfulness, good nature, and generosity of these people soon removed the momentary prejudices they continued to go about the decks till the transports of their joy gradually subsided when many of them left us of their own accord those who remained in number about forty being brought to order the brethren proposed having divine service on the quarter-deck mr cover officiated he perhaps was the first that ever mentioned with reverence the saviour's name to these poor heathens such hymns were selected as the most harmonious tunes first o'er the gloomy hills of darkness then blow ye trumpet-bro and at the conclusion praise god from whom all blessings flow the whole service lasted about an hour and a quarter how clear a picture one has of the scene described by men whose purity of faith, whose sincerity of belief, were beyond question. But one smiles a little sadly at the thought of their austerity, their total lack of that other divine attribute, a sense of humor. "'Toyo, toyo, friend, friend,' the Tahitans cried, and the missionaries, to requite them for their kindly welcome, organized a prayer-meeting an hour and a quarter in length, and sang, "'O'er the gloomy hills of darkness!' It was a prophecy, that song. The Tahitians and others of the Polynesian family have gone far on that road since 1797. Of course one doesn't blame the missionaries for this, but it seems to me that the chief benefit resulting from the Christianizing process is that it has offset some of the evils resulting from the rest of the civilizing process. This was not the opinion of Tino, supercargo of the Calabas' windship, however. I remember a conversation with I had with him on the subject, when Rottario itself lay within view, but still far distant. For the sake of argument, I had made some willfully disparaging remark about traders, and Tino had taken exception to it. "'You're wrong,' he said. "'You know as well as I do—or maybe you don't—what these people used to be.' cannibals. And not so many years ago at that. I don't suppose you would call it a genteel practice. Well, what stopped it? I'll tell you what stopped it. Tinned beef. That was a new angle of vision to me. I said nothing, but I thought I could detect a hint of a smile in his eyes as he waited for the statement to sink in. I have had some fun in my time, he went on, arguing this out with the missionaries. I say tinned beef, and they say the four gospels. Can't be proved either way, of course, but suppose right now every trading schooner in the archipelago was to lay a course for Papiti. Suppose not one of them was to go back to the atolls for the next twenty-five years. Leave the people to themselves, as you say, and let them have their missionaries with the golden rule in one hand and the Ten Commandments in the other, what chance would they have of dying a natural death? The missionaries, I mean. About as much chance as I have of getting old Maroke at Takaroro to pay me the 800 francs he owes me. What makes me laugh inside is that the missionaries are so serious about the influence they have had on the natives. I could tell them some things, but what would be the use? They wouldn't believe me. Just before we left Petit this time, I was talking to one of the Protestants. He told me that his church had two hundred converts in French Oceania, while the Catholics had only around six hundred. I believe it was. I said that I knew how he could get that extra six hundred into his own fold, and probably a good many more if he wanted to. All he had to do was to charter my schooner. Loader with Tahiti produce—bananas, mangoes, oranges, breadfruit. He needn't take a single gallon of rum unless he wanted to. Then we would make a tour of the islands, holding church festivals with refreshments at every one, and at the end of the cruise, I would guarantee that there wouldn't be a Catholic left in all Pomonius. He didn't take to the plan at all, and of course he did have one weak point. If the brothers tried the same game they would have had just the same success, and nobody could tell from one week to the next which were Protestants and which were Catholics. That's about what happened at Tacarillo the last time I was down there. The population is supposed to be divided, about half and half between the Latter-day Saints and the Catholics. There are no missionaries living on the island. The head churches in Papati send their men around when they can see how things are going with their flocks. That is usually about once a year for each of them. Boats don't often put in at Tacarero. I've been there only four times in ten years myself, and the last time I brought down a young fellow from the Protestant crowd. He had been with me the whole cruise, holding services at the islands where I had put in for Cobra. I hadn't gone to any of them, but at Taquerero I felt the need of some religion. I'd spent the whole day chasing that Mercaro I spoke about, the old rascal has owed me that eight hundred francs since nineteen ten he is an elder in his church too the minute he makes out my schooner standing in toward the pass off he goes on important business to the far end of the lagoon i went after him that day with my usual luck he wasn't to be found and i came back to the village feeling a little ruffled up It was just time for the meeting, and I decided that I might as well go as to loaf around finding that old hypocrite, while my copra was being loaded. The church was packed when it went in. There wasn't a Catholic in the village that evening. All of those who had been Catholics were taking part in the hymne and singing the Protestant songs as well as the Latter-day Saints. No one seemed to pay much attention to the sermon, though. The young missionary didn't understand the language very well and the preaching was hard for him. But he seemed to feel pretty good about the meeting, and when we left the next day he went down to the cabin to write a report of the progress his church had made at Takarero. He must have had a lot to say, for he was at it all the morning. He didn't know that we'd passed Ada just after we got out of the pass. That made me feel good, for Louis Germain, her skipper, has been a rival of mine for years, and I had every kilo of dry copra there was on the island. I got the megaphone and was about to yell, "'Good luck to you, Louis!' when I saw that he had a missionary aboard too, a priest with a knee-length beard and a black coat. So I only waved my hand, and Louis shook his fist and shouted something I couldn't make out. I was going to the westward, stood close inshore, and passed the village from the outside an hour later. The priest hadn't lost any time getting his congregation together. Since there was no copra to be bought, I suppose Lewis told him he had to get a move on. There had been another religious landslide. I was sure of that from the singing, which I heard clear enough, the wind being offshore, Great singers, these Palmatians, and it doesn't make very much difference to them whether the song is Happy Day, or Jerusalem the Golden. Of course, I didn't say anything to my missionary, as the old saying is, what you don't know won't hurt you. This conversation with tina was running through my mind as I strolled down the village island after the service. Tina, I decided, was prejudiced. His was the typical trader's point of view. I had heard many other incidents which bore him out in his findings but they came usually from men interested in exploiting the islands commercially a rise exposition of the old biblical story was that merely the result of a prolonged tin-beef crusade remembering the kind of sacrifice which was discussed very likely on this very island in the days of pure heathen such a conclusion seemed fantastical no one must be fair to the missionaries Perhaps they were overzealous at times, over-sanguine about the results of their efforts, so were all human beings in whatever line of endeavor. But their accomplishment had been undeniably great. Here were people living orderly, quiet lives. They didn't drink, although in the early days of their contact with civilization, until quite recently. In fact, there had been terrible orgies of intoxication. To overcome that was, in itself, a worthwhile accomplishment on the part of the church. Only a few weeks before I had met Monsieur Farlais, an administrator of the Potomans at Taniga. The reign of alcohol is over, he had said to the islanders, their strange words coming from the lips of a Frenchman. There was to be no more rum, nor gin, nor wine, for any Pomodians. Henceforth, any trader found selling it or any native drinking it, was to be severely punished. I continued my walk to the far end of the island, and, selecting a shady spot, sat down to rest. The pressure of a notebook in my hip pocket interrupted my examination of the problem. The missionary versus the trader as a civilizing influence. I was reminded that I had made no recent observations on the life and character of the Ponians and the recollection was annoying. Was I never to be able to pursue in indolence my unprofitable musings? Why this persistent feeling that I must set them down in black and white? Why sully the fair pages of my notebook? Words, words. The world was buried beneath their visible manifestations, and still, the interminable clacking of interminable typewriters the roar of gutted presses in the mind's eye i saw magnificent forests being destroyed to feed this depraved appetite for words which were piled mountain-high in libraries which encumbered all the attics in christendom words blowing about the streets and littering the parks on sundays filling the ash carts on mondays no i thought i will no longer be guilty of adding to the sum of words i will not write my learned monograph but that inner voice which itself is a creature born of many words an artificial thing however insistence its utterance spoke out loud and clear you idler you waster of your inheritance of energy you throwback to barbarism write but why i replied tell me that why sir because it is your vocation and have you no convictions your grandfather had them and your great-grandfather and those missionaries of the duff you have been thinking about ah the decay of convictions in this age the lack of that old sublime belief in something anything now then I have come down to you through a long line of ancestors. And I don't mean to die through lack of exercise. You may not believe in me, but you've got to obey me. Right. I know that I should have no peace until I did. I drew forth my notebook, and in line with my thoughts of a moment before, wrote underneath the last observation on perfume. THE SALE AND CONSUMPTION OF ALCOHOLIC BEVERAGES AMONG THESE ISLANDS IS NOW PROHIBITED BY LAW. IT IS STRANGE TO FIND SUCH LEGISLATION IN TERRITORY UNDER FRENCH ADMINISTRATION. IS THE PROHIBITION MOVEMENT TO BECOME WORLDWIDE, THEN? IS THE reign OF ALCOHOL DOOMED IN ALL LANDS? EXHAUSTED BY THE MENTAL EFFORT, BUT SOMEWHAT EASIER IN CONSCIENCE, I REPLACED THE NOTEBOOK IN MY POCKET. It was pleasant, then, to let the mind lie fallow or to occupy it with the reception of mere visual impressions. At length, although I didn't sleep, I was scarcely more animate than the fluted shell lying close by on the beach or the capoca-poca bushes which formed a green enclosure around my resting-place. Something whirled to the air over my head and fell with a slight splash in the water before me. I sat gazing at it curiously, hardly moved. So slowly does one come out of the depths of dreamless reverie. Little waves pushed the object gently shoreward until it lay rolling back and forth in a few inches of clear water. What, I shouted? I didn't actually shout. I didn't open my lips. But the shock of astonishment, seemed vocal as loud as a blare of trumpets or a clash of cymbals, before me lay a prettily fashioned bottle, half filled with seawater. And the label on it read, Kiva Bouquet, the soul of the exquisite Orient. Impossible, I thought. I am three miles from the village, and no one lives at this end of the island. Then I heard voices, or better one voice, which I recognized as that of Rangituki. She was talking in a low monotone, her most effective manner, when reciting one of her interminable stories of former days. Cautiously, I pushed aside the bushes and looked through. Rangituki was sitting about twenty yards away in the midst of a company of five. Penga was one of them, Tiva another, both fathers of families and both much concerned. A few days earlier, lest their children should waste the perfume I had given them, Penga took a pull at a bottle which I identified as belonging to Wild Violet. He made a wry face as he did it, but he took another, and then another, before he set it down. The wind was toward me, and, as the corks popped, or more accurately, as stoppers were lifted, I was forced to admit that June Rose had body impalpable perhaps but authentic i passed a fugitive revelers unnoticed by going along the lagoon beach keeping under the screen of copapa bushes should i tell puri the chief of this evasion of the law i decided that i would not for he was a stern man and would punish the culprits severely after all on an island where there were so few distractions what was a little perfume among friends. All of which proves plainly enough, it seems to me, the folly of keeping a notebook, at any rate, the folly of jumping hastily to conclusions. Or, perhaps more important than this, it gives further light on the vexed question. Does prohibition prohibit? I found no other observation on promoting rife. And character under this date, unless the word Mama Fau scribbled on the margin of a leaf may be regarded as a discouraged hint at one a suggestion for a commentary on a curious Polynesian relationship when and only when I should have had time to gather all the available data concerning it. This relationship was to do with the transfer of a child or children from the original blood-parents to another set known as feeding-parents. My interest in the practice dates from the moment when I made my first notebook reference to it, and it was aroused in a very casual leisurely fashion. For this reason, it will be best, I think, to tell the story of it in a leisurely way. Returning to the village from the scene of the perfume orgy, I found the church still occupied, although the service was long over. The benches had been stacked in one corner, the mats shaken out, and spread again on the floor. where fifteen or twenty people were reclining at ease or sitting native fashion. Some of them talking, some sleeping, some engaged in light tasks such as hat-weaving and the fashioning of pearl-shell fish-hooks. Others in the yet more congenial task of doing nothing at all it was the practice on sunday for the village to gather at the reformed church which they felt at liberty to use for secular as well as sacred purposes for it was a native-built structure with walls and roofs of thatch like those of their own houses the two other churches were never so used they were frame-buildings in the european or american style of church architecture with formal furnishings and windows of colored glass To have done any sort of work in either of them would have been regarded as a serious offense, certain to be followed by unmistakable evidence of divine displeasure. As Tuina once told me, sores, illness, even death, might result as a punishment for such desecration. I was thinking of this and other primitive reactions to ecclesiastical furniture, and my hand was faltering toward my notebook pocket when— Hori's little daughter, Maneva, entered the church carrying a white cloth which she spread on the pulpit table. She returned a moment later with a tin of sardines, some boiled rice on a kahia leaf, and a bowl of tea. I was Hori's guest for the day and had been anxiously awaiting some evidence that food was on the way, but I had not expected that it would be served in the church. I had not eaten in a church dinner since boyhood and, strangely enough, the memory of some of those early feasts came back to me while Manabe was setting the table, as one scene is superimposed upon another. On a moving-picture screen, I saw an American village of twenty years ago, a village of broad sidewalks and quiet, shaded streets bright with dandelions, taking ghostly form and transparency among the palms of Vertero. Two small boys walked, brisky along ringing handbells and shouting dinner at the presbyterian church right away the g a r band of fife, two tenor drums and one bass played outside the church where the crowd was gathering and horses attached to buggies and spring wagons were pawing the earth around the hitching posts then mrs McGregor appeared in the doorway her kindly face beaming the warmest of welcomes come on in and sit down folks everything's all ready members of the ladies relief corps mothers of large families used to catering for large appetites hurried back and forth with with platters of roast turkey and chicken roast beef mashed potatoes of marvelous smoothness and flakiness with everything in the way of food which that hospitable middle-western country provides I heard the pleasant talk of homely things, smelled the appetizing odors, saw plates replenished again and again. Throughout the length of the tables old-fashioned gravy boats sailed from cover to cover. But I spared myself further contemplation of the scene, further shadowy participation in a feast which cost the affluent but a quarter, and a bell-ringer nothing at all. The vision faded, but before it was quite gone i heard a voice saying land sakes you boys ain't eating a thing have some more of these dumplings what's the matter with your appetite ain't you feeling well it seemed a thousand years away that voice and no doubt it was and is even further than that church dinners at rottario were not such sumptuous affairs they were not, in fact, an integral part of the community life. In so far as I know, this was the only one ever held there, and was the result of Hurry's peculiar notions of the hospitalities due a white man. I told him that I was not accustomed to dining in churches at home, even on Sunday, and furthermore, that I liked companionship at table. But he was not convinced, and he refused to join me. He and his family had already eaten, he said, so I sat on a box at the pulpit table, partaking in a solitary meal, and got through it as quickly as possible. I smiled inwardly at the thought of the inheritance of prestige granted me without question, at Rottario merely because I was the sole representative there of a so-called superior race. No white wasters had preceded me to the atoll. This was fortunate in a way for it gave me something to live up to the ideal Rutorian conception of the papa white man. Horari was partially responsible for the fact that it was ideal. His tales of San Francisco, which to the Pomodian means America, had been steadily growing in splendor. He seemed to have forgotten whatever he may have seen there, of misery or incompetence or ugliness. All Americans were divinities of a sort. Their energy was superhuman. Their accomplishment, as exemplified in ships, trains, buildings, automobiles, moving-picture theaters, beyond all belief unless one had actually seen those things. And the meanest of them lived on a scale of grandeur. Far surpassing that of the governor of the Pomodans, at Vokaba. Yes, I had something to live up to, at Braterio. The necessity was flattering, to be sure, but it cost some effort and inconvenience to meet it. I didn't dare look as slack as I often felt, both mentally and physically. I could not even sit on the floor or stretch out at my ease when in a native house, and I was compelled, when eating, to resume the use of my two-pronged fork and the small tin spoon, although it was much simpler and easier to eat with my fingers as the rest of them did. Having finished my meal, I took what comfort prestige permitted by placing my box by the wall and leaning back against the post. Dicario, a woman of barbaric beauty, was sitting nearby playing Conquer the North on my ocarina, I taught her the air in an unguarded moment, and had been regretting it ever since. Hunger, her husband, lay at her side, his strong, fine limbs relaxed in sleep. I would have given all my gratuitous prestige as a popra to have exchanged legs or shoulders or girth of chest with him. It was at about this time, as I remember it, that my thoughts turned to the subject of feeding parents. Nuivain was present, still or again, nursing the three-months-old baby. It belonged, as I knew, to Takeo, who appeared to be quite capable of nourishing it herself. Why had she given it to Neuvenhain? And why had Hunga, the father of the child, consented to this seemingly unnatural gift? The transfer of parenthood had been made a month earlier, since which time ticario and her husband had shown only a slight proprietary interest in their offspring Takario sometimes dandled it on her knees as any woman might the child of someone else but no one would have guessed that she was the mother of it neuvain fed clothed and bathed it and her husband neuvain was as fond of it as she herself they kept the child at their house and between them made as much fuss over it as though it were their own flesh and blood. What could have been the origin of this strange practice of parenthood by proxy? It was a common one throughout eastern Polynesia. I had seen a good many instances of it in the Cook Islands, the Marquesas, and the Society Group. Here was a subject worthy of an important chapter in the Life and Character monograph and I decided I might as well begin my researches at once. Ticario reluctantly left off her playing and placed herself in a receptive mood. Why, I asked, had she given her child to Nueveni? Her reply was because Nueveni had asked for it. "'But see here, Ticario,' I said, "'I should think that you and Hunga would want to keep your own baby.' IT IS NONE OF MY BUSINESS, OF COURSE. I ASK YOU ONLY BECAUSE I WOULD LIKE TO GET SOME INFORMATION ON THIS FEEDING PARENT CUSTOM. CAN'T YOU FEED IT YOURSELF? IS THAT THE REASON YOU GAVE IT AWAY? I BLUNDERED atrociously IN ASKING THAT QUESTION WITHOUT MEANING TO, I TOUCHED HER PRIDE AS A WOMAN, AS A MOTHER. TAKIO LOOKED AT ME FOR A MOMENT WITHOUT SPEAKING. Then she tore open her dress and gave me absolute proof—not that I wanted it—of her ability to nurse her own or any other child. Following this, she went over to where Vane was sitting, snatched the baby from her arms, and almost smothered it against her body. She fondled it, kissed it, covered it with her magnificent hair. I had never before seen such a display of savage and tender maternal passion. By that time, Noivane had recovered from her astonishment and came to defense of her own. Her month of motherhood gave her claims to the child, apparently, and she tried to enforce them physically. Tecario stood her ground, her black eyes flaming, and, holding the baby in one arm, pushed Noivane away with the other. I expected to see hair flying, but luckily both women found their tongues at the same moment. They were like They were, in fact, two superb cats spitting at each other. The torrent of words did not flow smoothly. It came in hot, short bursts, like salvos of machine gun fire. And curiously enough, it was almost pure Pimotian, not the hybrid Pimotian-Tahitian commonly used in their temperate speech. It bristled with snarling ng's, with flint-like k's from which fire could be struck in passionate argument. Other women took sides in the quarrel, and I poked an inquisitive pencil into a wasp-nest. The effect could hardly have been more disconcerting. Hunga was awakened by the angry voices and looked on with sleepy perplexity. Nuitain grinned reassuringly, as much to say, Don't be upset. You know what women are. Finally, Pare, the chief, who had been an impassive spectator, bellowed out a command for silence. The tumult subsided at once, and the fury of the women with it Five minutes later, everything was as it had, had been before. Hunga was sleeping, and Nuitane polishing a pearl-shelled fish-hook. Nui Vahani had the baby, and Takari, the ocarina. Neither of them showed the least resentment either toward me or toward each other in intensity and briefness the gusts of passion which swept through the little church was precisely like the squalls of wind and rain which darkened the seas of the low archipelago in the midst of the hurricane season which burst almost from a clear sky and then as suddenly melt into pure sunlight again when i left the village to return to soul eaters island the was still playing the old border ballad on my ocarina. It had once been my favorite air for that instrument. I first heard it in northern France on a blustering winter evening when a brigade of English regiments was marching under heavy shell-fire into one of the greatest battles of the war, to the music of pipes and drums. Humming the air now, although I still feel a tightening of the nerves, a quickening of the pulses, it is not because of the old set of associations. They have been buried forever, beneath the set. The village at Raterio comes into view, and I see Takario clutching a baby against her naked breast, standing in the midst of a crowd of turbulent women. Should there be some other Polynesian scholar who wishes to pursue further an inquiry into a curious practice of child adoption— I would advise extreme caution at a toll far on the southeasterly fringe of the low archipelago. The place may easily be identified, for he will find there a young woman of barbaric beauty, who will be playing conquer the north on an ocarina. End of chapter 9